Cool fact, a crocodile can't stick out its tongue. Also, you can get health insurance for a month or just under a year in some states. United Healthcare short-term insurance plans, underwritten by Golden Rule Insurance Company, offer flexible, budget-friendly coverage for you. Learn more at UH1.com. I'm Ryan Grimm, and for this episode of Deconstructed, we're going to be joined by Guillaume Long, who served as foreign minister under former President Rafael Correa. I spoke with Long recently for the Wednesday morning show I do called Counterpoints. Those interviews tend to be shorter, and we don't have as much time to go in depth like we do here. But this one did, and when I finished it, I thought to myself, deconstructed listeners would actually love this one. Because while that one wild scene in Ecuador made the news, nobody has talked about the U.S.-driven policies that turned Ecuador from one of the safest places in the Americas to one of the most dangerous in an incredibly short amount of time. And yes, we're going to be talking about neoliberalism, Austerity, Trump, and Biden. Here's my conversation with former Foreign Minister Long. Ecuador has broken into extreme civil unrest. To unpack what's been going on there over the last decade and up into the most recent couple of weeks, we're joined now by Guillaume Long, who was the uh, former uh, foreign minister under former President uh, Rafael Correa, also served in the government of Lenin Moreno. Uh, he joins us now. Uh, Guillaume, first of all, thank you so much for joining me. Yeah, thank you for having me on the show. So just a a quick add to the bio, I, I, um, I served very briefly under Moreno. I quit very soon uh, in opposition to his policies. Right, in, in, in protest. And actually, that's right. Yeah. De- describe uh, why you quit in protest, because I think that'll help bring us up to the, the present day. Because I think our viewers will basically only know Ecuador as the kind of so, uh, social democratic government that allowed Julian Assange to have uh, asylum inside the embassy. We also know that that didn't work out long term for uh, Julian Assange. Some of that had to do with the changes in the political environment back home in in Ecuador with the departure of Correa. So, what what happened with the the, the new government? Why did you uh, resign in protest? Yeah, so Lenin Moreno was elected in 2017 on a pro Correa platform. He had been his vice president, uh, and as part of the party, I you know we supported him. I supported him. Uh, and I, after being foreign minister, I was sent to um, Geneva as his uh, permanent representative to the United Nations. But very soon into his presidency, it became very it became clear that he was uh, his motives need to be explored. He was certainly leaned on by the Trump administration at the time, but he uh, did a U-turn on all of Correa's policies, both at domestic at the domestic level on social policies. Fundamentally, he brought the IMF back in and sort of uh, orchestrated an austerity package, neoliberal austerity program. And of course, on the foreign policy front, he became Trump's best friend. I uh, actually authorized uh, the use of um, uh, air, uh, airstrips and runways in Ecuador for the, for the U.S. military, brought the sort of U.S. security apparatus back in, changed, I mean, left UNASUR, did a U-turn on all these kind of geopolitical issues. And of course, as you just Noted, he expelled Julian Assange from the London Embassy, which, regardless of whether you know he actually liked or disliked Julian Assange, this had become a major, uh, you know, um, asylum issue that had to do with international law and had to do with human rights and so on and so forth. And so he actually violated uh, the Ecuadorian constitution and so on. Anyway, I left before he uh, threw Assange out of the embassy. Um, within six months, I had left, and most of the 
former Korea ministers and uh, supporters uh, had left by then. He, but then, what? And I'll just finish on that. What he really did, which was uh, terrible, was to persecute uh, Korea, Korea supporters. He actually made Korea's party illegal while he managed to seize the party and then prevent a new party from being born. Uh, yeah, he was the authentic uh, Shakespearean traitor, I would mm-hmm. say. <laughs> yeah. and, to, and to bring it up to present day, you now have uh, narco traffickers you know, contesting for genuine state power. Uh, you had a, a key, you know, not only did you have a major assassination that was linked to narco traffickers during the presidential election, but you had uh, a, a leader, a leading narco trafficker broken out of prison recently of prison guards held hostage. Another, uh, another narco trafficker broken out of prison, state of emergency declared. What's going on right now in Ecuador? Yeah, so it's a tragic situation unfolding. Um, in fact, I don't really know of any other examples in peacetime of such a decay of the security situation. Uh, Ecuador used to be one of the countries in Latin America with um, the lowest rates of insecurity. It certainly had one of the lowest homicide rates in the hemisphere. Uh, Korea left office with a homicide rate that was 5.8 murders, homicides per 100,000 inhabitants, when the Latin American average was around 16, so way below the Latin American average. In fact, Ecuador saw itself as this kind of island of peace with two problematic neighbors in terms of security, historically, Colombia and Peru. Um, Ecuador was largely spared by the drug trade. There was some transit and some money laundering, but generally speaking, it was one of the least affected countries in the region. So 5.8 homicides in 2017 when Correa leaves office. We've just closed 2023 with 46 homicides per 100,000. That's an eight-fold increase. Uh, it is the, I, in, in my knowledge, the biggest security slide decay in peacetime that any country that I've studied uh, has ex- experienced. And I think there are a number of factors that explain this. Um, there's a change, there's external factors, a change in the logic of the drug trade, the Colombia's southern border becoming more important, all sorts of external factors. But I think the m- most important one is the abandonment of the state this huge austerity uh, program, which kicks in from 2018 onwards, supervised by the IMF, with major budget cuts, three ministries that uh, are closed, you know, the Interior Ministry, the Justice Ministry, the Coordinating uh, Security Ministry. uh, And you can see gradually the state receding in its exercise of sort of, I would say, vibarian sovereignty, you know, being uh, less and less present in Ecuadorian uh, territory. And of course, um, criminal organizations love vacuums, right? So the narcos uh, saw that vacuum, utilized that vacuum, and they've been fighting each other ever since for the control primarily of maritime ports. So a lot of the violence is on the coastline, on the Pacific coastline of Ecuador today, for the control of these drug routes, these ports. Uh, this also means that they sometimes fight or corrupt or infiltrate the uh, military and the police force that, or the security forces that control these ports. And so it's, a, it's become a very complex situation with rival gangs also that are part of the sort of hierarchy of the Mexican cartels, so various Mexican cartels fighting each other through these Ecuadorian gangs. And, of course, significant parts of the security forces, particularly the Ecuadorian police, being infiltrated you know, as a real gangrene of these criminal organization and state apparatus, which is obviously a huge challenge because once your state apparatus is penetrated by the cartels, by a criminal organization, 
To clean it up requires a lot of clever public policy, but also requires a lot of a lot of willpower, a lot of strength, and the capacity to withstand for the um, new president that we have now in Ecuador since November. The capacity to withstand blackmail, to be tough, to you know, to steer the course. Uh, so I think huge challenges lying ahead for Ecuador it, for the years to come, unfortunately. Right. And it, and it requires state power, which by definition you don't have because of the austerity uh, driven policies. And this does seem to me to be the most kind of stunning and, and rapid indictment of austerity that that maybe I've seen in, in my entire life. And so what I'm curious about is who was driving Moreno? Like where where did where uh, we, we, where did this come from? Yeah, I think it's ideologically driven. I think, uh, you know, Correa had sometimes a a problematic relationship with the United States. I think the Trump administration saw in Moreno a weak guy that they could, you know, that they could make sure he would tow the Monroe doctrine and move away from, you know, whatever, the diversification of foreign policy that happened in the decade prior, including with China and so on. And they really used it as a kind of of a showcase of recuperating control over what had been one of the pink tide countries. Uh, and it was part of the rightward turn, you know, from 2015, 2016 onwards. In Ecuador, it happened in 2017. But let's not forget, it was a regional phenomenon as well. You know, 2016, Dilma Rousseff was impeached. Mm-hmm. In uh, Brazil, in 2015, you had Macri win the elections in Argentina. Um, this was also the time where Venezuela was facing huge protests. Then you would have a, the, the coup against Morales in 2019. So the Trump administration in Latin America was quite problematic like that. And I think not, I mean, regardless Trump, who's, you know, we can discuss Trump's foreign policy, is a bit isolationist. I don't think he was sort of, he didn't give much importance to Latin America mm-hmm. at all. But his allies within the Republican Party in the U.S., were sort of neocons, right? Basically, Marco Rubio um, and Pompeo himself and Bolton and others were people who really wanted to reassert U.S. power over the Western Hemisphere. And uh, they organized coups, a lot of them, three of them in Venezuela that failed, one of them in Bolivia succeeded. And I think, yeah, Lenny Moreno was was part and parcel of that geopolitical struggle that happened in that moment. I would just add that after the four years of Lenny Moreno, you just had two years of Guillermo Lasso, which was in a way even worse because, in fact, he didn't finish his mandate because there was an impeachment process against him. He managed to avoid impeachment by dissolving the assembly and calling for new elections halfway through his mandate. But the reason why there was an impeachment process against him is because he was corrupt, deeply corrupt, and in bed with the narcos, the narco-traffickers. So what you had after four four years of uh, austerity, if you like, was a government that actually had links with organized crime. So that cocktail of both the receding of the state with two neoliberal presidents, but also uh, the sort of presidents that were sort of with problematic, a problematic relationship with organized crime, um, yeah, has created a, a sort of a, a kind of a double helix of causation, which has sent Ecuador into uh, this terrible situation that we're witnessing now. We just saw the tragic, the tragedy of the 18th of January with now coordinating attacks on behalf of the drug gangs on a scale that we hadn't seen before. We'd seen kind of small-time gang uh, violence. This is on a large scale. And even within the hierarchy of the Mexican cartels, we now think there's some evidence that suggests that Ecuador plays quite a senior role uh, in, in, in the structure of the Mexican cartels. And not just 
the sort of subcontracted gangs. They've become part and parcel of transnational mm-hmm. criminal organizations. And you know, particularly if you can operate with legal impunity uh, within an area, that that makes it you know that gives you an advantage within the kind of cart within the cartel structures as well. And I think your description of Trump um, is is an, is a good one that. He himself personally might have isolationist instincts, but during the Trump administration, he really just took the leash off uh, the neocons, as, particularly as it related uh, to South and, and Central America. And you and you saw them then launching the you know whatever experiments they they could get they could get away with. I'm curious what the Biden administration's response, if any, you know, has been since uh, since taking power. What have they done uh, with regard to Ecuador? Yeah, it's very sad, but I would say in general in Latin America, the Biden administration has been very disappointing. You know, after a Trump administration, as you've just said, essentially dominated by Florida Republicans and that kind of lobby on uh, Latin American policy, uh, we were hoping that the Biden administration, you know, we weren't expecting anything perfect, but we were hoping the Biden administration would correct some of these things. And I think the only real positive of the Biden administration, and it's an important one, has been to sort of be respectful of electoral results, maybe because of the U.S.'s own history. You know, the Biden administration uh, was wary that, you know, you're not going to call fraud every time that a leftist wins or whatever. So, so you've had the Biden administration sort of recognizing electoral victories in Bolivia when the left has won. And of course, when Lula won, Biden was the first people to sort of uh, recognize the result, particularly against Bolsonaro, who was kind of represented Trumpism in a way, mm-hmm. in its international expression. And, uh, you know, elsewhere, there's been some more, I would say, respect for rule of law and those kinds of things. But in general, uh, you know, I've, I feel the Biden administration could have moved uh, on so many issues, including obviously Cuba and Venezuela, but also in Ecuador, you know, it's still a support for some of the most conservative sectors in Ecuador. I would say the, the the hard right, not even the soft right in Ecuador, is being supported by the U.S. For example, on issues such as the lawfare and the persecution of the left, and and all the stuff and the, the actors that have been behind persecuting Korea, you know. With, with, you know, with Correa today granted political asylum by Belgium because he's been politically persecuted. Belgium not exactly being a leftist state, right? Or the Interpol saying in three times in a row, we will not activate a red notice for the arrest of Mr. Correa because he's clearly being politically uh, persecuted and there's been no due process in Ecuador. And yet, you see the U.S. embassy, you see the U.S. State Department, you see the Biden administration really giving coverage and support to some of the most aggressive sectors of what we call the judicial party in Ecuador, which Mm -hmm. is a sort of kind of the hard right that's penetrated the judicial apparatus and is persecuting the left. I mean, in the U.S., there is more, you you guys tend to be more acquainted to uh, Moro and the Brazilian case, you know, Judge Moro having lied to persecute uh, Lula. But we have something very similar happening in Ecuador, which obviously because of uh, Ecuador's size and importance has less visibility in the United States. And this has enabled the U.S. to double down on this. You know, the equivalent of Judge Moro in Ecuador, Diana Salazar, the prosecutor general, is being granted the anti-corruption awards by the State Department is kind of seen as the U.S. front person in Ecuador. And she's belongs to the far right, really, and uh, persecution. So, so I think that's where the Biden administration is really disappointed. Democrats, institutionalists, people who believe in mm-hmm. modernity, who weren't necessarily expecting, you know, the U.S. to sort of defend the left and sort of play a super progressive role, 
but we're expecting the Biden administration to go back to a tradition, even to some of the Obama policies, right? Some you know, more kind of institutionalist in defense of rule of law, due process, those kinds of things, human rights, those kinds of things we, we expected from a democratic uh, administration. And I think we've been very disappointed. And briefly, tell, tell us a little bit about the new president who was just sworn in in November, Daniel Noboa. Uh, banana, he's described as the you know, banana heir and the youngest uh, president in Ecuadorian history, uh, a, a, something of a centrist. Uh, where, where does he come from and is he up to the, the task here? Yeah, so he's the son of the most wealthy man in Ecuador. He comes from the real traditional oligarchic sector, banana exporters. Um, but he did campaign on a more centrist kit in the sense that he said he was fed up with this kind of polarization between, you know, on the one hand, Correistas, followers of Correa, and anti-Correistas, which is the politics that has really marked Ecuador over the last uh, 15 years. And so he wanted to transcend this. He also thought this would give him some of the youth vote, which is kind of fed up with this polarization between left and right. And he was kind of the, con- the candidate of post-politics, right? The going beyond politics, which obviously I'm very suspicious of and I'm not necessarily a supporter of, but at least it's less radically neo-McCarthyistic, if you see what I mean. Mm-hmm. So he won on that ticket by a narrow margin. And uh, because he's facing, and he's just inaugurated in November, so it's very recent. And because he's facing such huge challenges, particularly on the security front, and because uh, January the 8th and January the 9th have been so traumatic in terms of these coordinated assaults on behalf of um, criminal organizations, he has been supported by an array of parties, including by the opposition, including by Correa himself, who have said, you know, this guy's just been sworn in. Ecuadorians have voted for this guy. We won in favor of him. Uh, but, you know, he needs to be uh, supported because he faces uh, a risk which doesn't just put, you know, his administration at risk, but the, actually the Ecuadorian state at risk, its institutions, and, you know, the very essence of Ecuadorian sovereignty and democracy, right? So he, he is, Enjoying right now a little bit of a honeymoon. He was elected, he was sworn in in November, so very recent, and also kind of national unity or a spirit of national unity uh, um, with kind of parliamentary parties rallying around him and saying, we'll support you through this. He's just declared a state of exception. Now, I think he's problematically declared uh, an internal conflict, which is equivalent to war, a state of internal conflict, which is equivalent to war. This militarizes the conflicts against the narcos. For those of us who have studied the war on drugs in the past over the past 40, 50 years, it's not exactly a story of successes. And every time there's been a militarization like that, whether in Mexico, in Colombia, in Central America or elsewhere, it's often led to human rights violations and not much success. And when there has been success, uh, cartels have been fast to move to the next country, which is what has just happened to Ecuador. Whenever there's a void, whenever there's a vacuum, they're fast to fill it. And we're still facing the same problem, maybe even an even worse problem than we were facing three decades ago. So I'm a little bit skeptical about this hyper-militarization, but I also understand that he has to give uh, have to, he has to respond. Hopefully he can respond intelligently. I think it's also important to think of this issue not just as a security issue, but as a social and economic issue. It is not a coincidence that Ecuador has been one of the countries that has fared so most badly in the region in social terms, with already before the pandemic from 2017 to 2020, a massive growth of poverty by 17% in two years. Uh, and Ecuador has been the country which has had the slowest post-pandemic recovery in South America. So the slowest uh, 
GDP, per capita GDP growth in South America since the pandemic. All these things are not coincidences, right? They, they create the social uh, fabric that then enables these uh, drug uh, gangs and criminal organizations to thrive. So I think Noboa needs to think beyond just the security dimensions of this and have a much more sort of integrated, holistic approach to public policy to bring the state back in, recuperate control, purge the armed forces and the, and the police of its bad elements, uh, and but also activate social policies that bring the state back in a friendly way, not just in a hostile way, in the territories that are most problematic. So, you know, huge challenges. And obviously, we wish him, uh, we wish him well, but uh, I, I have some doubts as to whether he has uh, the capacity to deal with this crisis right now. Well, brutal stuff, uh, but a real window into the consequences of austerity. And uh, Guillaume Long, thank you uh, so much for joining us here. Really appreciate it. Hey, if you liked that video, don't forget to hit the like button and subscribe to Breaking Points. If you want to see the rest of CounterPoints, go to breakingpoints.com to become a premium member and get the full uncut show every morning in your inbox and on Spotify. Help us build independent news and get the full show every morning at breakingpoints.com. That was Guillaume Long, and that's our show. Thank you to CounterPoints and Breaking Points for allowing us to use that interview. Planning for your next trip? Elevate your travel style with Quince. Quince has all the jet-setting essentials you'll want for your next getaway, like European linen, premium luggage options, buttery soft Italian leather bags, and so much more. And is all priced at 50 to 80% less than similar brands. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe and ethical manufacturing practices. Pack your bags with high-quality essentials you'll be wearing for vacations to come with Quince. Go to quince.com slash pack for free shipping and 365-day returns.